0: Yeah, well, before we proceed along those lines, I just want to say biological archaeology should replace the phrase de-extinction. That sounds a lot better to me. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Nathan started a thing. I think it'll catch on, but...
1: Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse.
0: And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister.
1: Well, today we're going to talk about de-extinction which is a phrase that I, I didn't know the terminology, but I was familiar with the concept. And basically the idea um, is, thank you, Michael Crichton, is to can you take the, the DNA or tissue of a dead and extinct species and bring that creature back to life?
0: And so... <laughs> soundtrack
1: by Cameron there. Perfect. Um, So the one that i had been familiar with is the woolly mammoth project because we do have some good frozen tissue and biological material from woolly mammoths. And apparently they're unearthed with some frequency. So obviously there were a lot of them and they were running around not that long ago. So good tissue samples there. And they're fairly close. I mean, in some ways to an elephant, uh, they're in that kind of general category and family. So there's a $15 million project underway in order to, uh, work on uh, the elephants but then the one that i was reading about today is the tasmanian tiger which only went extinct in like the 1930s i believe and so there's uh some thought there that maybe this is a and it's a strange creature i mean don't be thinking tasmanian devil here this is a tasmanian tiger and the tasmanian devil doesn't actually look the looney tune version doesn't actually look like a tasmanian devil in the real animal anyway no but we're talking about tasmanian tigers here which is a essentially looks like an emaciated dog that's a marsupial, kind of like uh but one of the main predators that uh, persisted in Australia longer than anywhere else and it was a formative part of the ecosystem there so really neat creature it has stripes on it, kind of like a tiger, but looks more like a dog more or less at the first glance so anyway there's there are a lot of well, okay, let me just put my i'll just put my cards on the table and then I'll get you to help me sort out you know where you think this is going because a lot of me thinks this is really cool. I hope we pull this off. Wouldn't it be great to be able to go and see a woolly mammoth? Um, And then the whole, like the science behind the Tasmanian tiger, since there are like smaller rodent sized marsupials that could technically serve as a surrogate for it. There's some ideas there that maybe they could reconstruct genetically and produce something that could be grown inside of something else. Um, So like, Thirty thousand foot view. I think it would be neat to bring back an animal that has been extinct. However, some of my hopes there have been dashed scientifically, and I want you to help me figure out theologically if it's even a right impulse. I think it's just an area of like high curiosity for me, but the science there is not that great, and there's been some significant pushback on that. Of even other scientists saying, yeah, even with the woolly mammoth project, you're not going to recreate a woolly mammoth anytime soon. You can get an elephant and edits edit its genes so that it has long hair but even with it you know so uh there's i mean you can even watch a ted talk on like could you turn a chicken into a dinosaur kind of thing where basically you're starting with a chicken and then you're editing you know a number of physiological genes in order for them to express themselves in a way that they would have the appearance of maybe scales instead of feathers or something like that or you could take one marsupial and uh, understand the genetics of the Tasmanian tiger, and then modify those genes that they express themselves in a way that produce something. like. So it's, it's all very complicated. The birth rates are terribly low on this, even on human cloning or any kind of cloning. You're creating a lot of non-viable specimen that are going to suffer and die. And it's, there's a lot that goes on in the news. I mean, you'd have to use artificial wombs on some of this. There's a lot of talk about that. I don't know that the technology is, quite as developed as sometimes it sounds like it is in the news. So anyway, there's significant scientific reasons why this isn't going to happen anytime soon. However, there's also significant research money being thrown into these programs to try to pull that off. And so uh, I think I have an idea of where I want to go with this, but I'd love to hear your feedback on where you think the impulse or the drive or the desire or what you find to be interesting about de-extinction. What do you think is going on there? Why Why are we interested in that?
0: Well, because it's amazing, first of all, that that even the thought that we could bring back or recover some species that's now extinct. I will never like the word de-extinction. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't
1: really roll off the tongue.
0: (laughs) It's interesting. It's a very... Well, first, so it's an utterly captivating project. It immediately captures your imagination. It is pretty emblematic, I think, of modern scientific ambition, right? I think we're we're at a we're at a juncture where it is very difficult to voice any dissent or any objections or any hesitations when it comes to pure research. And that is an interesting conundrum because there are plenty of forms of research that are probably it's possible that we could do it. The question of whether we should be doing it is something else entirely in a sense we mentioned michael crichton this is really a question underlying a good deal of his work including jurassic park i mean if you've read if you've ever read the the book or if you've seen the movie you probably remember the scenes with jeff goldblum's character ian malcolm saying you know you spent you basically spent so much time asking whether you could you never stopped to ask whether you should and so setting aside the question of first of all whether this is even possible anytime soon at all or whether it's possible at all. I'm sure oh, that I there's think we'll a, see a, a good deal. I think, of think we'll see a
1: long haired elephant in our lifetime.
0: Okay, I a long haired elephant, sure. You can't throw
1: fifteen million dollars at something over multiple years and not come up with something interesting. But I'm so so I think you're gonna see genetically modified and designed animals that aren't viable to reproduce, certainly aren't going back into the wild and aren't really what so a long haired elephant is not a woolly mammoth is what I'm saying. So I think yeah. we will in our lifetime start seeing more conversation about, Oh, we've, you can bring back characteristics of something, but whether or not that really is that thing, I think is a long way out.
0: What is it that strikes you about it, Nathan? Cause you said, especially talking about the, the Tasmanian tiger, that you just thought it would be really cool to see this creature. What is it that, that you find captivating about this?
1: Well, so it's it's discovery, but it's historical. And so th- and there's almost a time travel element baked into this, right? Where we often think of adventure or discovery or exploration as something unknown, unseen into the future. And here we have the um, desire to dig up and understand. It's almost like art, biological archaeology of like, mm. what is this creature? Um, so again, hear me saying, I don't think we're going to be able to pull this off. I'm talking about humanity, uh, anytime soon, but I, so there's just a, the huge neatness factor there now. Hey, let's talk about some other crazy stuff that happened. So a couple of years ago, I think, were we together at Texas A&M? Or maybe I was there on a trip yes. without you. I think, I think anyway. we were. Okay. So at Texas A&M, they were rebuilding cattle essentially. So, the problem with grading cattle is that you have to kill them just to, to grade their carcass, and then you hang one up and you're like, "Wow, this one was really great. Unfortunately, it's dead, so it's no good to our breeding program and so they were taking tissue samples and replicating the the genetics of that animal, like we're talking about a dead skinned hanging animal and then breeding and then fertilizing embryos and reproducing that cow essentially with those genetics that it would have. Basically, the weight gain and the way that the meat is marbled and and is structured on the body of the animal. I mean, so this is that was like five years ago. So the ability to mechanize and and mess with biology and craft and design it, and then we, I mean, now we have CRISPR gene editing and all of that sort of stuff. Um, this is only going to get crazier as as it goes forward. So, I mean, I guess part of my question is not really scientifically, but philosophically what's the drive to do it. So I think for me it's kind of like just the uber neat factor. I like to see how things work, but I think there are also maybe some reasons for I'm trying to decide. Are there like are there theological reasons for caution or how should Christians be thinking about this type of enterprise?
0: Yeah, well before We proceed along those lines. I just want to say biological archaeology should replace the phrase de-extinction. That sounds a lot better to me. You heard
1: it here first, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Nathan started a thing. I think it'll catch on. But when we think about this from a, a theological or ethical standpoint, I want to bring in Michael Crichton again here because I think he's helpful on this point. There's a lecture out there that I told you about, Nathan. I think Nathan and I both, I li- both listened to this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we both watched the this. The audio
1: video is terrible on it, but it's definitely it worth your
0: time. It's worth your time. You can hear it. It's it's on YouTube. We will drop it into the show notes if you're interesting. If you're interested. I hope you're <laughs> If
1: you're interesting, you should watch this. <laughs> <That's all. laughs>
0: you're listening to this podcast. You're interesting. But he is talking about... if. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong Nathan it's is it Yosemite National Park that he's talking I've, about
1: Well yeah it's one of many things um but yeah
0: Yeah Oh he I starts off with that
1: example yeah of the reintroduction of wolves maybe
0: Yes so Okay yeah I had no idea this was all new on me I don't think it was new for for Nathan but it was new it was new for me He was talking about the way we we managed this our national parks and the one the example he uses is Yosemite and he said, actually, we Yellowstone, have this,
1: it's Yellowstone, it may it's have been,
0: it may have been Yellowstone as well, because that's where the all of these, myst- see, see, we've got to create a sense of mystery around this video. So you should watch it and you can find out whether is it <laughs> is it Yellowstone. It's I think now that you mentioned it, I think it is Yellowstone. So. We make there's a repeated mistake that we make with these. I didn't know that these national parks were such a disaster in terms of their ecology. And it's not because it's that that disaster is not a natural one we we've been monkeying with it and mismanaging it. And the problem is that we are treating a complex system as a simple system. And he points out that nature is a complex system. There's more than there's way more, not only the meets the eye, but there are intricacies to it that we're not accounting for at all. And so when we try to just have some, Bring in some simple solution, like, well, we've we've got an overpopulation of elk or something like that. Let's, you know, just shop in a few more wolves here. The results are anything but predictable. And again, if this sounds familiar, this is the theme of Jurassic Park, by the way. (laughs) Where the the (laughs) stick a new predator
1: in the system and see what happens.
0: Yeah, exactly. The whole thing, the whole theme of that story is predicated on an illusion of control. So on the one hand. Crichton is pitting human ambition and ingenuity against what would seem to be a kind of chaotic system or a very very complex system. Mm-hmm. And you have that pride inhibiting you know that that un- the understanding there. And so yeah. something along those lines comes to mind here. Now obviously granted let's let's not leap way ahead of ourselves here you know you've mentioned that what's likely is that we're going to just see some, you know, probably some elephants with longer hair here in the near future. But the implications of this, the notion of the impulse to if we could, you know, recover a now extinct species and reintroduce them into the world, I think where where I would what I would be worried about these days is just probably the overall lack of hesitation that we have (laughs) about such projects. You know, I would be worried that we're not more worried about it. I think we have an attitude now when it comes to research and pure research that we just basically think, well, scientific progress is necessarily good. Therefore, we ought not to inhibit it. I mean, this is one of the reasons. I mean, this may sound maybe this takes us off course, but I mean, we have nuclear weapons because of this very it's the same sort of question that i mean if you even look at some of oppenheimer's words after his involvement in the manhattan project which resulted in the creation of atomic weapons and then of course we've since expanded the destructive capacity you know you'll see initially a man go from being very excited, very enthusiastic about the project to basically having a very conflicted relationship with his career, with the U.S. government. I mean, we're all going to get a first front row seat to this pretty soon because Christopher Nolan's new movie is Oppenheimer. And that—that that, I'm actually looking forward to that. I've taken us way off course, but I think those same kind of considerations <laughs> standard operating come into procedure play force. there.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So Let's talk things. about movies now. Yeah. So two things. One is that, so I think there is, there is concern, um, and, and people are pointing this out of like, yeah, what would it mean to re re-release a predator back into an ecosystem and that kind of thing. So I think we're a bit more, good, good, good. um, but yeah, you can do everything from multi-floor rows to all sorts of invasive insects and stuff that were released thinking it was a great idea that have just been a nightmare for a lot of things. But, yeah, then there's a lot of practical like, so my wife was like, on the woolly mammoth thing, where would this thing live, like in a cage for the rest of its life? Are you gonna put it in a zoo, or like so you built a cold tolerant elephant now what? you know where do you where do you, where do you put that? like, hey, Alaska, we have a little project for you. um, so yeah, so there there's that side. Let me loop back around to the Yellowstone thing, though, because mm. there's a difference between conservation and restoration in ecology and the the difficulty of restoration is because you were saying it turns out we've mismanaged yellowstone well here's the problem what ought yellowstone to be like and so this is the big question of should yellowstone look like it looked like when teddy roosevelt was there or should it look like a thousand years before that or should it look like 2020? what we don't have a good picture of scientifically is the oughtness of nature. So how do you, how do you restore something that you don't, that that is a product in in a, a specific time and it's part of a complex system. And so this is where the complexity of the system and the oughtness get really difficult is to say Yellowstone, any large ecological system is, is totally dynamic and fluid in the, rivers and the wolves and the beavers and the grass and the elk and the trees and the for and the fires and the forest and all that are constantly changing and growing and shifting and so how do you just pick a point in time and say okay this is what we should restore it to so that's that's part of it now that's not to say that we shouldn't do it at all and i i i think a lot of those projects are neat but it does play into this conversation of biological like ecological oughtness and how we as humans fit into it and so i think while we were off topic, I just wanted to throw that in there too, but it might play into this. What happens when you have a disrupted complex system, but you only restore one element of it. Uh,
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating distinction that you made between conservation and restoration. And I think it's worth mulling that over a little bit here because at the risk of taking us further off topic, but actually, I don't think this does, this has a direct bearing on what you just said, There's an increasing tone to some of the critiques of human involvement, particularly in nature. And all I can say is, I think we've mentioned this before on the podcast, Nathan. These critiques proceed as though human beings are intruders somehow in the system. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is inherently inimical to the flourishing of nature. I mean, and obviously there are extreme versions of this. That all treat the virus, human beings like the cancer virus. language and all that. Yeah, exactly. Virus or plague. And we've talked also about how that ironically, in a negative way, is still, it's a negative register, but it's still treating human beings as somehow extraordinary and special. Mm-hmm. You know, Which we would say again, yes to. but right. Well, there are two ways to do that, broadly. You can say human beings are made in the image of God, or you can say human beings are a plague and a virus on the earth, and they're so incredibly <laughs> powerfully destructive that they need to be utterly eradicated from the planet. All right, I mean, you're, you're still—this is very highly exalted language, albeit very negative. But here, part of—so here's what I'm wrestling with, Nathan. Part of our sacred duty and the creation mandate is for us to cultivate— the world around us and to play a part in bringing a semblance of order where we can, not to everything. Now notice, not stewardship is, is not the same thing as control dominion Mm -hmm. is not the same thing as domination. Sadly, they, they people often fail to make that crucial distinction, but so I think it's really, so restoration in the sense of trying to make something look like it did in a prehistoric era or trying to cultivate some sort of Edenic spot in the modern world that doesn't reflect any of the present day, you know, technology or anything like that does seem to be a bit misguided. Mm -hmm. So I like your question of, yeah, Yellowstone, you know, way back then versus Yellowstone in 2020. And yeah, so let's, Think, think along those lines with me for a second, Nathan.
1: Yes. Yeah, so okay, but so there I think there are types of restoration that are really neat. So I live in a state where there was a lot of um massive clear cutting of timber, um, strip mining, all sorts of things. And now you have like strip mining restoration projects, you have forest restoration projects to say, hey, look, here's a species that only thrives in this ecosystem. Why don't we grow these here? Um, It'd be neat to grow this. I mean, but it's in close enough memory that we have a sense of like, these are the species that that thrived here. And like we have a type of flying squirrel that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world except for here. So why not plant the trees that they thrive in in the national forest as part of the restoration of what that probably. um... So I think there's a deep human participation in that. So don't hear me, you know, poo pooing restoration. In fact, I just thought of a guest we should have on the show to talk about that. But there's a sense in which it's the oughtness factor that plays into what ought this look like is is where there's difficulty there. So, um, yeah, that, that's all that I want to say on that, I think. But here, so here's the thing, is that I think in a lot of these, um, okay, so a couple of things. One is people would say, well, why don't you just take the $15 million that you're putting into recreating a woolly mammoth and put that, you know, focus that on conservation of like not making other species extinct. Uh, so there's a distribution of resources. What do we want to focus on on that side of it? But I think maybe the the first, I'm trying to think, you know, what would be the first kind of comeback to this topic of de-extinction or biological archaeology, as we've now named it, um, is that I think any time that you're messing with something on the molecular level, people are automatically, or the genetic level, people are automatically going to say, you're playing God. And my question is, sure. is the system so complex that playing God isn't a possible category for humans. Now, hear me out. I think we can put ourselves in the posture of thinking that we're the measure of all things, and 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 there's a sense in which we're doing that. But I think if you look at what is actually scientifically possible for humans, combined with the philosophical, ethical, and moral questions inherent in some of our choices, the the compounded complexity of the things that would need to happen there are so inferior to the natural systems that we see in creation and in the world around us, that it almost is not taking the complexity of what God does in the universe serious to think that there would be a level of comparison to think that we could be, quote, playing God. Now, that's not to say that there aren't lines of what we should and shouldn't do. Don't hear me saying that. But my view of who God is and what humans are capable of is there's a disparity there to the degree that. I don't think God's going to be threatened by whatever we come up with. I don't know. How's that sound to you?
0: Yeah, I think, well, I think the phrase I've, the playing God has never sat easily with me either just because I think, yeah, God's power and majesty are in fact, so unfathomable that the idea that a bunch of us, you know, monkeying around in a lab with our little toys posing any threat to him is just laughable. But on the other hand, you meant you did mention, you know, the human heart and the capacity that we have in our own minds to try to occupy that seat and to call the mm-hmm. shots and to control. And I think in the past, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, there are some, I think, pretty superstitious views of the hard sciences these days, because some people just seem to look at them in almost magical terms. And that's where... When, so whenever, I'll just put it this way, not everybody does by, by a long shot, by the way. There are plenty of people who have a healthy view of the hard sciences, plenty of scientists who are wonderful, brilliant, but also just humble human beings who admit the limitations of what we can do, but also will celebrate the amazing advances of, of, of science. There are plenty of people who hold that balance. But I think it's also safe to say whenever science becomes a substitute for religion, that's where the playing God mindset can become a very serious temptation. And I think that has happened, especially in the modern world when you've, I mean, let's say ever since, and it's hard to point to put an actual, you know, firm date on this, but probably this is something that we've been dealing with ever since the the scientific revolution, wherever precisely you pinpoint that certainly it's, it's really escalated since the industrial revolution when we've we've just had amazing powers and capacities that truly are astonishing but the problem is we tend to get all hung up on our toys and forget about our actual condition and forget how vulnerable and weak and frail we human beings actually are yeah and whenever so, that happens yeah
1: well so a technological and industrial revolution coinciding with this i mean basically coming right out of a scientific revolution basically allows you to do actions faster than you can see the consequences of those actions and so that's where things get interesting um and I think that probably goes back to the garden um yeah. but the so so it's just an amplified version of that now people who work in the timber in- industry where I live are very clear that if in the 1900 like 1902 if we had had the technology then that we do now, there wouldn't be a tree left in my state because the only thing keeping people from clear cutting the entire place was, you know, they were doing it by hand, not with feller bunchers. So, um, fortunately sometimes our technological progress doesn't allow us, uh, to run things to their logical conclusion. Let me say one other thing. And this is what I meant to say back when you asked me about conservation restoration. So. In the county that I live, there is a seven-acre triangle of virgin forest. And this happened back in the early 1900s when uh, companies were buying huge swaths of land to timber and build the eastern seaboard, basically. And one of the surveying crews used Magnetic North and one used True North. And so the difference of the way that they surveyed the land resulted in this seven-acre triangle that never got claimed by anybody and then never got timbered because nobody was quite sure who it belonged to. And then when they did figure it out that it was much later and the family donated it to the state. So this is seven acres of virgin timber. And when you walk into a forest that has never had a chainsaw in it or never been cut or never been grazed or anything, it is rather unimpressive. And I say Mm. that to shock you slightly because most of us are used to hiking in forests with huge trees and old growth timber and all of that. Nope. All of the national forest that has been selectively cut. It's been burned. It's been cultivated in a way to produce huge trees in, in the ecosystems there. So when you walk in a forest that hasn't had human interaction in it, it's not as healthy as a lot of the other forests that you see in other parts of the world. So it just pushes against mm-hmm. that idea that humans are only a virus or a cancer. Yeah. We are meant to live on this planet. And if you want some really conservative old school fundamentalist theology on this, go back and read Genesis and what we were put here to do. So I think it fits very well with that idea that we have, you know, a lot of gray matter and opposable thumbs, and we are supposed to change the world around us. But we're supposed to do it with a sense of oughtness and a bigger vision of what's going on in the world uh, and not do that in a flippant way where we think it's all about us. So that is when we start playing God is when maybe we make ourselves the exalted pinnacle of, um, yeah, consumption, perhaps. Yeah. So all anyway, just like the, the idea, and I think the idea of regenerative agriculture and redemptive agriculture and these silviculture, and people are now starting to think, wait a minute, maybe the land is healthier when humans are thinking well about it and are interacting with it, and maybe the surface of the earth needs people in order for it to be... Uh, the most beautiful and the most healthy and most productive. I mean, it's almost a, you'd say a Genesis uh, view of what God had planned for people. So there are some real life examples there. But my question is, to get us back on topic, is, okay, we can say, well, there's a way in which we need to be working in the forest and working in the fields and thinking about um, the preservation and conservation and restoration and all of that seems to be a God-given task. How do we know what the limits of that are? Because I think that's the question for The Tasmanian Mm, tiger of is attempting to biologically or genetically restore an extinct species. Is that part of the purview of what we as humans are supposed to be up up to as God created us?
0: Yeah, I think so. My, I'm going to hold my cards to my chest on that one for just a second. I'll, I'll actually I'll give a direct answer in a moment, but I think along just going along with what you said Nathan we are gardeners not creators right try that on for a second and you know as a as a listener let me expand on that a little bit because you might you might be tempted to resist that a bit and that's fine you know you you'll have to think that through but in on fairy stories JRR Tolkien has a very helpful distinction where he he basically he uses the term sub creator. I actually prefer the I'd actually like the term gardener better. But where he says we're sub creators, only God is a creator in the primal sense mm-hmm. of that word. He creates ex nihilo. He makes from nothing. But what do we do? We, we use shuffle the yeah. We shuffle. That's right. We rearrange. We shuffle. We organize. We use the tools at our disposal. We use the materials at our disposal. So we're gardening. We're not creating. And that doesn't mean we can't be creative. Of course, we are creative. Human beings are highly, highly creative, but we don't create. We garden. And when we're doing can, that
1: well... You can turn the pot on the wheel, but you didn't create the clay.
0: Right. Precisely. Yep. And you're you're bringing that creative gardening impulse to bear when you're doing so in a responsible manner you're bringing it to bear on your environment, the world around you, your communities, and it leads to growth. It leads to flourishing when we're doing it well now, if you discover here's the other thing about power, your comment about you know if we had had certain technologies available available to us at you know historic eras, we might have we may have had no more you know forests, no more of this, no more of that because of that, just that exploitative impulse or, or just our appetite to just keep building and doing more when that gets out of hand, when that runs amok, here's a comment that Dallas Willard once made. It wouldn't be a podcast without me referencing <laughs> Dallas Willard. <laughs> I am gonna check but, that off little box here. Dallas Willard yeah. Right. Cam- on the right, Cameron perfect. bingo sheet Great. there. Yeah. But he, he once pointed out, he said, you know, the Lord, the Lord in his mercy limits how much power we actually have. And he was just, yeah. And and this is, this goes along. This is another podcast that we've, that's been percolating for Nathan and I at some point. So we're going to talk about this at some point, but we've, we've, we've talked about the fact that the miracles that Jesus performs are also astonishing indications of human capacities and human capabilities. That I think, and this is a little bit speculative, but I actually think in theory are, are, avail- are available to us even now if we understood and knew how. Now, Jesus is the eternal word. He's the master. Through him, all things came, in, came into being. So he, he understands. Well,
1: he's great at physics.
0: Physics, right. He understands the underlying principles and laws better than any scientist on the planet and knows them all. And so for him, turning water into wine... You know, somebody once told Dallas Willard, he was a scientist, I believe he was a chemist, he said, you know, the amount, even if that were true, the amount, the sheer amount of energy that such an undertaking would necessitate would destroy the pot. (laughs) And Willard just said, I didn't have the heart at that moment to tell this fellow that if Jesus had that kind of power at his disposal and his capacity, the pot would not be an issue for him. (laughs) But that's, but we have, so we, all that to say, we have an amazing amount of, you know, we have a lot of technical power and ingenuity at our disposal, but I think we can look at, we can look at the way this is limited during different historical periods. We can look at how, I mean, think about the, the forms of technology that we don't have available to us right now that, you know, if that were, you know. 30, 40, 50 years from now would, would absolutely astonish us, you know, oh, sure. Could it be that there's also a reason for us, you know, getting certain forms of power at certain times and, and it being withheld at others? Because I mean, we're in a position now in our day to understand what happens if we completely deplete forests, for instance, now, that doesn't mean that we aren't wasteful occasionally and that we don't make a lot of mistakes and that there are ecological crises but we're in a better position to understand that kind of damage now than people were 100 200 years ago Mm -hmm. so there does seem to be a sense of proportionality here but also there i mean there are just astonishing forms of power that i think we have scarcely wrapped our minds around that we are meant to have one day that's what we're Again, Willard, we're training for reigning with Christ, but we have to be. But we, as it stands, we can barely manage the powers that we have. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. we have a lot okay. to learn.
1: In the meantime, okay. So, so here's. So, all right. What about this? What about the rightness or the wrongness of something? Isn't always necessarily in the power. It's in the reason for exercising that power. So. Mm. Here's the here's the thought that I've developed in the last thirty seconds on trying to reproduce an animal from the past. Here here are my thoughts on biological archaeology. If you're doing it for some sort of um guilt maybe of restoring something that we brought to extinction or if you're doing it out of a desire to feel like you really are in control of the world um I think I think there could be bad motivations for doing something like that. However, I think the the scientific pursuit of trying to figure that out will likely have some wonderful spin-off implications for modern medicine and what will be learned by pursuing the challenge a lot of the wonderful things in our lives um were kind of accidentally discovered on the pursuit of some other question scientifically so i mm. think there's a way in which we could say yes let's be very pro research um let's do that conscientiously, let's see what happens if we bring the bubonic plague back. You know, not a good idea. But, you know, yeah. okay, creating a long-haired elephant or a striped marsupial dog, uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's a... I don't know. Am I trying to have my cake and eat it too here? What's the... So if we don't see it as a threat to God's sovereignty, and we don't yeah. see it as the Tower of Babel and building an edifice to the ingenuity of humanity. Is there a, an appropriate pursuit here where we can say, yeah, we're going to learn something about the complexity of the way that God made the world. And actually, as we push into it, I mean, so think about the human genome project. Did that make you think yeah. that the world was less majestic?
0: No, just the, just the opposite. Yeah, of fact. exactly. I mean, it, so, yeah,
1: I, yeah. so I don't know. Am I, am mm-hmm. I on thin ice here? And maybe somebody who's listening can, can get me sorted out here on this, but it doesn't, so I think there are dangers, but I don't want to say that it's wrong. Is
0: that? Yeah. No. I know, does actually, Dave make sense. No, what you're saying sounds reasonable. I'm just you. You calling it a dog is really cracking me up. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> not, I mean, this one looks like it's not a dog. It's not a king. It, do, it does. <laughs> it You know, it looks like a chupacabra to me. Oh <laughs> the, yeah. Okay. You know, let's whatever. throw a
1: mythical creature in here to, for comparison. Yeah. If
0: we can bring that no, one I back. Don't. That yeah. Hey, anyway. Way to bring that one back. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think you're on thin ice. Um, no, I think with. A question, you know, when questions of the motivation behind the project, also, you know, just practical considerations of the astonishing amount of money, you know, that goes into financing a project like this too, all of that. I think when we're channeling those energies in a responsible manner, I think there can be, yeah, there can be some constructive discoveries along, along the way. And I think it, it has the promise of, yes, it does, I think, hold the promise of enriching our sense of, yeah, the majesty and the wisdom behind the created order. Absolutely. Time
1: out. Hang on. I want to throw one massive clair- line of clarification in here. Here I'm talking about experimenting using animals. I'm not talking about using humans and artificial wombs and genetic engineering of people. That's a whole totally different ball of wax for me. So just in case you mm-hmm. think we're going down some crazy trail here, which maybe we are, I I, I want to make that distinction. Um, and as a Christian, I can to say there's something different about sticking human body parts and components and fake wombs and stuff into this equation versus yep. the genes of a prehistoric pachyderm.
0: Like yeah, how I worked I the think-
1: alliteration in there.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And I think and here I'll work a, another horror reference in here because I in many ways a lot of a lot of critics have pointed out that the central fable of our era is Mary Shelley Shelley's Frankenstein. And a lot of people forget the subtitle of that book. Do you, do you remember what the subtitle of Frankenstein no. is? The Modern Prometheus. Hmm. And it's a really I mean pretty astonishing that she was 19 years old when she wrote that, by the way. But the, when we, I mean, I think I'm glad you made that distinction because that's probably el- the elephant in the room for some people as they listen oh, here because the they think in about the room.
1: I see what you did there. It's the woolly mammoth.
0: Uh-huh. See what I did? In the po- it's the woolly, in the, in the, the woolly mammoth in the podcast. The woolly mammoth in the podcast along with the tiger dog thing. But <laughs> it, I mean, I think people are thinking, yeah, that, but that same kind of energy and creativity and resourcefulness is also being, being targeted at, it also has a human target. In some people's aspirations. And that's where I, all that to say, it's a very powerful and important and meaningful distinction. I am a little bit skeptical as we move forward that we have the proper resources to make that distinction now as a society. Because when you don't have a vision that grounds human beings not only as distinct, but as special, and again, the Christian terminology there is made in the image of god the imago dei if you don't have that and if human beings are just one really sophisticated animal among all the others on the planet making a distinction between yeah why not why not and so i mean and that's why that's just to that's a sobering note to introduce here but that's also just to say that's why these conversations are important and serious and that's why we need our Really, we need really incisive and responsible minds on the job as we think think through this, even something as as seemingly innocuous as looking at de extinction of a, a former species there I said the word, but you my said was fell such, as I said
1: it was it was such malice in your dejection yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I think before we tackle the human version of this, we, we'll have to have a, a guest on the yeah. podcast who is far more articulate and up to speed at exactly what's possible and what is just hyperbole there. Um so I don't know. Did we I don't know if we came to anything conclusive here? Nathan still thinks it would be neat. He thinks there's some he refers to himself in the third person now. Um I think there would be some fascinating things there, some serious caution. Um, but some possible scientific discovery that comes from exploring what's possible. And the theological question that we didn't quite land on is whether or not that's within the creation mandate and the theological purview of what's decided for our interaction with nature. Part of the reason I think it might be is because human capacity does not surprise God. So that we would one day be capable of, CRISPR mm-hmm. fits, I think, within somehow within God's delight in us exploring and learning, um, but doing that without a framework for what ought to be done uh, probably won't be good. So that's where I'm at right now. I somebody like that. can, somebody I should like come that. back and help us get that sorted out. But that's where I'm sitting at this moment. Yeah,
0: and I think I'm in a position where here I will I'm going to defer to you a little bit on that one. I, but what everything you've said sounds very reasonable to me and it's very well said that no human capacity is shocking or in any way a threat or a surprise to our Lord. After all, he made us and he he gave us the minds that we have.
1: We could just be more creatively sinful that way. We can. <laughs> That's a possibility.
0: I mean, that's yeah. The possibility. I mean, the 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 amazing fact of human life is that we have incredible potential for good or for ill.
1: Yeah. Well, and and the thing is, I mean, we we do some of this so much already. I mean, if you're opposed to the manipulation of animal physiology, well, Chihuahuas are right out, and modern dairy Mm -hmm. cows, and almost every other domesticated animal, um, we already modify heavily for human purposes, the animal world around us. So, oh my
0: goodness. On the sub, on the subject of dogs alone, I mean, as my, my sister will point out to you who works with animals for a living, there are certain breeds of dog that we've manufactured them, we've made them because we think they're cute. They literally can't breathe.
1: Yeah, it's not and a... And so she would yeah. tell
0: you, yeah, the ethical thing to do would be not to have this particular breed because it doesn't have an optimal body (laughs) can't it can't even breathe properly oh we've created a but we think it's it's adorable
1: yeah well and so that's basically what's going to happen with a lot of the what doesn't work of a lot of animal experimentation i mean that's part of the ethical thing of why cloning has been paused to such a degree is yeah you got dolly the sheep but you also had what like 270 siblings of dolly that were born premature and disfigured and everything else so um Mm -hmm. also the question my Seven-year-old son asked me the other day while we were working in the garden: "Is if you did have a clone, how should it refer to you, Papa?" And I was like, "No, nah, I don't think so." But that's an interesting question of how should your genetic material that's conscientious refer to you. Uh, anyway, we're way off topic now, but that's fun to
0: think about. Well, this is a roving conversation that is very much thinking out loud in dynamic. Ooh, I want to
1: quote you, Cameron. You said you're listening to this podcast, so you're an interesting person.
0: <laughs> that's right, that's right, and we hope you've we we hope we've kept you interested throughout these forty five minutes here, but I think we'll probably definitely venture back to the topic of you know some of the current scientific you know research, especially you know genetics, those kinds of issues, likely with a guest at some point here in the near future but yeah, I think once again, I think this is a good this is a good reminder to revisit the book of Genesis. I mean, if Seriously. you listen to Nathan for any length, yeah, for any length of time, revisit the book of Genesis. Take a look, take a close look at that creation mandate and think through those implications. Because again, it's it's been our experience at least that for whatever reason, I mean, there's a complicated history here. A lot of Christians in North America uniquely have not been, have not thought through that very much and have not been given the opportunity to think through it because it's not emphasized and it's not taught as much. The good news is that's changing. Yeah. yeah, well, there's, there's think... been an
1: overemphasis on the timing. So the mm-hmm. argument has been, how did it get here and how long did it yes. take to get here? And those so, aren't incidental conversations, but you can't have them at the loss of reading what is communicated there is what's supposed to be done with it now that it is definitely here.
0: Yeah. Right. So, that's your takeaway. If you're if you're up for it, <laughs> go back to the book of Genesis and take a look at the creation mandate and see how it colors your perception of what you do in your garden, what you do in your natural what we, we as human beings do in the natural world and the scientific enterprise. I think it might take you in some surprising directions. But you've been listening to thinking out loud a podcast where we think out loud about current events and very ancient prehistoric animals and Christian thought. And hope. And hope, there you go. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.